0: It's your boy, and today is Sunday, October 8th, and uh, a little bit ago I got off the phone with a friend of mine, and uh, they were asking if I had made my recording for the day, and I said no. Um, It doesn't mean that it doesn't get done, but it means, um, yeah, I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but I feel like lately I've really kind of uh, tapped into that procrastinator side of my life. And it's not in every aspect of my life, but in, in some areas more than others. So there's plenty of things that I enjoy doing, and I, I feel like I have endless amounts of time to to dedicate to those things. Uh, there's a couple classes in school right now that I really enjoy, and I not only do all the work for those classes, but I often read ahead. I just had a bunch of midterms for this Confucius class. And, um, um, oh, I like where my mind's going, actually. Um, I had a couple midterms for that class. One was an in-class class Actual, like written midterm, and then the other one was an essay I had to turn in. But anyway, the point of the only place I'm really going with that is that I am well, I'm uh, I've read ahead in that class. The part that's interesting, and I liked where my mind was going, is uh, I also had this class that I think I talked about last time. I think I did go on this kind of circuitous talk about Columbus. I had a uh, m- uh, midterm, I, pr- I was probably talking about it, that's probably why we were talking about it. I had a midterm for that class last Tuesday where basically I was given, I think, like four prompts of essays that we had to prepare for class. And of those four prompts that we were given, three were going to appear on the test. And of the three that appear on the test, we would have to select two to write about. So I think if I did the math correctly, it was if you prepare any three of those prompts in advance, when you arrive at the test, you'll just simply need to regurgitate what you had already written. And... Uh, What we didn't have in advance was we had this list of terms covering the first unit of the class, and we would have to provide these kind of short answer responses. Basically, I think we were going to be presented with like eight terms, and you had to select five and write a paragraph about each of them saying what they were and why they were relevant to the course or something like that. And then the last part of the test would be these essays. The exam was like an hour and a half long you were encouraged to only use about 20 to 30 minutes on these kind of vocab terms and then spend spending at least the last hour or 30 minutes each on these essays so pretty pretty lengthy and uh after about an hour and a half of writing by hand and of course because it's a test you're you know you're like nervous you're not even realizing it necessarily but you're like gripping your pencil like extra hard and there's like this tension and you kind of feel the clock like ticking behind you and you know you know you only have a finite amount of time to write so you're kind of writing feverishly. And by the end of an hour and a half, I literally felt like my index finger on my right hand, like was like the tip of that finger was like numb for the rest of the day. Um, but anyway, I haven't gotten a grade for that or actually any of the assignments or midterms that I've done recently, but I, I feel pretty good about all of them. The one I don't feel good about, and actually I am I already see myself diverting course from where I was hoping to head and where I was excited about heading, but the only thing I'm not excited about is I'm taking this political science class, uh, which I just absolutely loathe, and uh, I have this note here of all the assignments I'm supposed to be doing, and lo and behold, for all the classes I enjoy, there's either only one or two upcoming things, um, or they're empty because I'm already caught up and there's nothing actually on the forse- uh, for the forse- foreseeable future that I need to attend to. Meanwhile, this political science class has like 12 items of readings that I haven't completed, and uh, we actually have a midterm for that class not uh, this week but the week after so unfortunately you'll probably have to hear about this the next time we connect but uh, this class is just super frustrating uh, the lecture is done asynchronously the instructor is very intelligent clearly very passionate uh, passionate about the topic and 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 based on some of the stuff they said in lecture recently clearly this person used to work you know I think in Congress or something like that or, you know worked for a congressman or I don't know what their connection was but they're clearly very knowledgeable they have a lot of experience I think the problem, though, is they've been teaching this class for a very long time, and so they are um, intimately familiar with the material, um, and so I think in their mind, they think this stuff is very easy, unfortunately for the rest of us. One, none of us really want to be in the class. There's maybe a couple of people who seem to pipe up and, and seem interested, but it seems pretty clear that the vast majority of us are here uh, because re- it is a requirement, and... Uh, you know, it's just I I sort of let the luxury wash over me. Uh, The good news is that you know, I don't need to ace the class. I just need to pass it. So I'm sort of trying to comfort myself or give myself permission to just do the bare minimum. And while that feels good because it leaves me time for other things, I have to admit that I I do sit with this kind of you know, low hum of anxiety that I'm like not doing enough or something like that. I was actually talking about this in therapy, which is um, like most of the things I talk about here, but I was saying recently, there's something about these... And I actually, this is actually picking up on something we were talking about last time too, which is difficult teachers. And rather than just rehash what we were talking about, I'll say... The thing that was kind of clarifying for me in therapy is I was saying, there's something about this political science class that's actually... It makes more sense to me. And by that, I mean, I kind of... If 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 someone was just a third party was just kind of looking at the facts, they would say, "Oh, this guy's a good student. He's getting good grades. He must be doing, not just, you know, well, he's doing exceptionally well." Except for me, my actual living experience, what I genuinely feel every day, of my life, is like that. I'm not doing enough. That I'm that the good grades that I do get, I get just because I'm like tricking people, <laughs> you know. I'm like putting one over on the teacher or. I'm skating by on talent or luck or something like that. And I think I was talking about chemistry classes last time, but when I find myself in these classes where I see everyone else kind of talking about how unfair things are, or they're kind of incredulous that the class is being run this way, for me, I actually feel like I've, I've arrived at an inevitability, if that makes sense, which is If my operating thought is like, I'm just getting by on luck or talent, but at the end of the day, I actually don't work that hard, and it's just a matter of time before the other shoe drops, and I'm kind of forced to be held accountable for the lack of uh, work that I do, right, that's what I sort of tell myself every day, it makes sense that when I find myself in a chemistry class or a political science class like this, where the work is very hard, there's tons of reading, it's very technical, and you know while other people look at the material that's on the test and say oh that's unfair it's too granular or it's not what we were sort of told to prepare it's very easy for me to sort of flip into one apologist mode and say well the teacher can test on whatever they want you know it it would be it would genuinely be unfair if they were testing us on things that we'd never encountered before but as long as it was in the lecture or in the book at the end of the day it's 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 sort of fair game um But the flip side of that coin is a self-esteem issue, which is like, for me, it just makes sense because when I'm faced with this, it's not like I... Maybe a more rational thing is, hey, I'm a pretty good student and I work pretty hard and uh, assuming I'm well calibrated and I'm not kind of just like, I don't know... uh, trying to make uh, accommodations, or I can't quite think of the word, Uh, I'm not just sort of rationalizing my own behavior. If I'm up against a class that feels especially difficult, maybe that's information. Like maybe that's actually uh, a feeling that I should listen to, rather than just sort of uh, push aside and assume that the difficulty that I'm facing in this class is actually evidence of the shortcomings that I live with all the time. And, And I actually put this person on kind of like a pedestal, or as finally a paragon of uh, the quality or standard of education that I have uh, heretofore avoided by virtue of luck or whatever the case may be. Or, as I think I was talking about last time, you know, there's this idea about grade inflation and that somehow teachers today don't grade nearly as hard as they formerly do. And while that may be observably true, I don't know that anyone actually argues against that. I think people do tend to get better grades now than they used to. But anyway, I think those are multidimensional things that I don't know anything about, so I'm not going to talk about them. <laughs> but the point is, is yeah, I don't know. Actually, I don't know what the point is. Um, where I think I was trying to go, and maybe a better place to tap into than just complaining is actually my enthusiasm, which is I'm reading ahead in this other class that, conversely, I'm not. It's not really my thing, but I'm I'm turning out to really enjoy it, which is this history class, which is about encounter and conquest. In the Americas, which is like the the Spanish arrival, which I think we talked about last time, to the Caribbean, but since the end of the midterm, we're moving into the second unit, which is about uh, Spanish encounters in the, the the sort of Valley of Mexico in the early 1500s. So this the quote the quote Aztecs, and uh, I actually maybe it's my fault for not reading the syllabus or not really caring about the subject, but I didn't really know where we were going next in this class. But I was really enthused. Um, Because uh, a good part of what we've been reading, at least for this week, is kind of the quote Aztec. And I'm using quotes, actually, just from what I've learned from this course, which maybe I'll sort of uh, explain here in a moment. But reading about the sort of Aztec sort of culture and uh, literature, uh, even though most of what we have is actually from the Spanish perspective, but it's such an exciting place for me to find myself again, because although I'm aware that there are two different things, uh, I think a lot of times we think about the Aztecs and the Mayans kind of interchangeably, for better or worse. But I had this period where I was very much into, um, you know, Mayan religion or whatever. And so, I mean, the, the sort of first introduction that I had to that was when I was like in my early 20s. When I first moved out to the Bay Area, I was dating someone who was studying Spanish. And I remember her telling me about Popol Vuh, which is like the Mayan cosmopolitan, cosmogony or creation story. And I remember reading it around that time and just thinking it was very interesting. Um, but at the time, I just sort of contextualized it in like my general interest of religion and, and that sort of stuff. I, I didn't really know anything about the, the you know, any, any anything other than that text, I didn't really know. But flash forward, maybe about a decade later, when I was in my last relationship, uh, and by last relationship, I mean the relationship that you know, if you've been listening to this personal journal for a while, you're aware of. And with my partner, we had took taken this trip to Belize. And while I sort of imagined it would be a kind of a nice vacation and get some sun, I honestly and I think like there was going to be like some, you know, strip jungle, whatever, walking, hiking kind of thing. I really didn't anticipate any kind of like cultural experience but my favorite part about the trip and it was the mo- it was it was the most unexpected part about it is within the first couple of days we took this trip to a Mayan ruin called Zunantinich. and we may have, and I think we may have gone to one other place that day but when we arrived there I was so moved by how I felt when I was there and I I don't know how to explain it cuz even when I think back to it you know I have pictures of the experience but none of it really captures the kind of internal feeling I had, which was, for me, it was actually very profound and very moving to find myself in this site where, as you're you're hearing the guide talk about it, you know, tens of thousands of people lived here. And you're just sort of given free reign to just kind of walk all over the ruins and kind of explore as you will. And it was just very consciousness-raising. It just felt very profound to kind of be in that space and and to just kind of try to put myself back in this time period, you know, a thousand or 1500 years ago when this was like a thriving metropolis. And it was both very humbling, but also kind of like felt great to be a part of this, you know, maybe not ethnically or culturally, but this like human culture, right? This human uh, history that I was sharing with these people to be occupying the same space across vast amounts of time. It just felt very profound and very cool. And then I guess the the sort of the thing that really amplified that is I think either in the next day or a couple of days later, we went on this really cool trip to this place called I'm gonna butcher it, but I think it's called Oktun Tunik McNall or ATM Cave. If you Google it, you'll find it in Belize. And you basically go caving. And the history of this cave, the way I remember it or understand it, was that it was kind of a sacrifice place. And they would kind of take people into the very back of this cave where they would sort of sacrifice them. And, you know, the caving itself is very cool because you have this kind of long hike through the jungle and you actually have to like cross this river where there's like a rope that you hold on to, but you like wade through the water and it's very, very cool. And then to enter the cave, you basically have to swim into it and you have to go, I mean, there are these videos now that you can find online, which are absolutely insane of people who go caving and they are going through crazy crevices and tunnels that are just big enough for their body to get through. And, you know, sometimes they get a little stuck, and you have to watch them maneuver their way out. And that stuff is absolutely terrifying. So nothing quite like that. But there's a couple tight fits. And as someone who's, uh, I would say, uh, has an average body, uh, it was uncomfortable for me. I can only imagine that the embarrassment they must have had to tell. They're You know, Americans, we kind of run a little bit heavy and you just it, it just is the case and I'm sure people have showed up for this experience and they said, I'm sorry, it's just not physically possible for you to, to, to do this. There's just places that we need to go that you're just not physically not gonna be able to get through. But the crazy part is at the end of this sort of caving thing and it, you go, you spend about maybe an hour in and an hour out or something like that. But when you get to the very end, they take you to this recess of this cave and up there's like a ladder that you climb up to um, on a higher level. And when you get back there, you have these sort of flashlights on your head, but there are literally human remains that are like fossilized, like in the back of this like little corner of the cave that you go and check out. And again, it was just a very cool thing to, to see and be a part of. And not only was it just a very exceptional experience, I never really experienced anything like that before. I mean, you really felt, I don't know, this kind of connecting with time or something like that. It just, it just felt very profound. The saddest part, though, and I swear this is true, the ca- the skull of one of the human remains there is actually crushed in. And the story behind it is there was a tourist who was there and was leaning over the skeleton and went to take a picture, and the lens of their camera you know, one of these huge DSLRs, the lens of the camera fell off and broke the skull. And I just thought, could you fucking imagine? This thing has been here. First of all, it's a human being, right? This is a person who existed at one time. If you had tapped him on the shoulder and said, hey, uh, not only are you going to be a human sacrifice in the, in the, in the, at, the uh, at the end of a cave, you're going to be sacrificed, and 1,500 years later, A Zoftig American tourist is going to be leaning over you taking a photo. Don't worry about what that is yet, but just suffice it to say, they're going to be leaning over you taking a photo, and they're going to crush your skull. How insane is that? Um, But yeah, anyway, so having that trip was just very formative. And uh, I almost forgot to go to this part. Those two experiences were just very profound and moving, and so much so that we had like five other days in... uh, Kind of outside Belize City, I can't I can't remember not not Bofemel or Bofemat. <laughs> I forget what we were saying, but the point is, is uh, you have these sort of excursion options that you could do at the place that we were staying, which is, hey, if you want to go rappelling, you can go rappelling. If you want to go on this jungle journey, you can do that. If you want to go to this sort of remote village, you can do that. If you want to go to the city, you can do that. And they had one trip that nobody else was interested in, which is a was a two hour and a half drive to, to call which is, I think, the largest Mayan uh, site uh, in existence. But it's two and a half hours away from Belize and uh, Guatemala. And I think more out of my interest than I think my partners at the time, we decided that we were going to do that. So we had this, uh, yeah, it was, a, it was just a huge process of like waking up at the butt crack of dawn for this van to drive us two and a half hours into Guatemala to, to call, and... Uh, yeah, again, seeing that site and seeing the pyramids is one of the few moments in my life. And I think it was probably happening. I mean, there was, I, I think it was this kind of interesting kind of transition slash transformative period of my life anyway, which is I had been dating someone. It would, I think we probably were together maybe another two and a half or two years after that. <clears throat> but it was the most important relationship in my life up until that point. And I think. I'd have to think about it, but I think it was either happening just before I went to school, returned to school, or, or something like that. I can't quite place it. I'd have to think about it. <clears throat> Excuse me. But um, I remember having this moment at the call where the, that was really kind of like the pinnacle of, you know, Zinantinish and the other sites were great, and ATMK was absolutely exceptional. But really being at Tikal and seeing the ruins and the pyramids and just sort of walking around that space and really seeing, I th- you know, I think there were, you know, I don't know, maybe as many as 100,000 people lived in, in, uh, at the Tikal site. I'd have to look it up. But that was really like, you know, the consciousness raising was like through the roof where I really felt like it was just really profound to be in that space. And, you know, especially as a modern society, we think we're so special, but then you're in a place like call and they explain to you, like, all the pyramids and everything and the entire city is sort of organized astrologically, and you just think, you know, it's very easy to look back at these, quote, and I know this is a pejorative, but these, quote, primitive cultures, and you realize that in some ways, although they didn't have the technological tools, they had something else, which our modern society really doesn't force us to cultivate. Which is like I, I was thinking about this recently. Which is like when I was younger, before cell phones, I knew all of my friends' phone numbers because I had to. You know, sure there was like a school directory, which was something. But I knew my mother's number. I knew my brother's number. I knew people's home and cell phone numbers eventually, or their pager number, if that doesn't sound like uh, uh, something uh, antiqu too antiquated for you. But you know, there was dozens and dozens of numbers that I had memorized. Where now, thinking back to this partner who I dated for five years, if you put a gun to my head and said, Tell me your partner's phone number, I would have no idea. I would have no idea what the area code was, even the first three digits. Um, The idea that somebody using no modern tools could build and plan and construct an entire city around, uh, uh, you know, to align with celestial bodies, that by the way, they only saw these alignments once every year, if that. Sometimes it's with a. You know, um, a uh, an eclipse or something like that that only happens like once every eighteen years or something like that. It's it's really nuts, um, because when you think about it, one I barely no, I barely notice these things, uh, and we have modern tools. But the idea that these things are so subtle, how did you even notice a pattern? You know what I'm saying? Like how many years had to go by before somebody was like, hey, you know what, this crazy celestial thing, I think it happens every eighteen years. And then what? You just sort of sit on your hands and twiddle your thumbs. And kind of, uh, how many generations have to go by before you actually have a working theory of when these celestial bodies kind of align so that you can begin work on the city planning that you want to do, so that these, the you know, the, um, the the zenith of this pyramid at this time of year, perfectly, when you're standing in the center of the city, uh, looking up at this pyramid, its zenith perfectly aligns with, you know, the aligning of the planets every 27 years, or something like that. I don't know how it works exactly. But the point is, is that that experience, I sort of reconnected with Popol Vuh and re-read those texts, and um, uh, I think tried to read some of the sort of codices that exist um, in translation. But anyway, so now that I'm uh, having this unit where we're learning about the Aztecs, or the, as I'm learning to sort of re-understand them as the triple alliance that existed in the Valley of Mexico around the arrival of Cortez in, I think, 1515. Uh, I don't know, but that doesn't matter. The test is not uh, just yet. So... But yeah, rereading all these sort of uh, you know, the accounts of the of the colonists and 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 some of these sort of translations from the codices very very interesting. So, um I'm very much ahead in that reading and um yeah, it's interesting. Sometimes you encounter these subjects where you think, "Oh, if I had another life to live, this this might be the type of thing that I might want to get another degree in or something like that." Um But yeah. I know this is a complete non sequitur, but um I'm thinking about, you know, my weekends lately have just been these like very kind of hermetic, kind of secluded days where um I think I told you I've, I've sort of taken a step away from the dating site. So, if there was a period where I was kind of having a, you know, a date every weekend or something like that, but The last few weekends, I've really just kind of stayed home and like not really left my house, but for maybe doing laundry or going to the grocery store or something like that. But it's been weird because I have these kind of five days during the week, Monday through Friday, that are very kind of stimulating and I'm on campus and I have things to do. And there's, especially now, there's assignments that need to get done and and I I need to sort of take care of my time uh, or plan my time pretty specifically. And then the weekend comes and there's plenty of things that need to get done. But I don't really plan it out for example, recording this is something I've made a, a commitment to but it just sort of gets done when it gets done and that goes for whatever reading or paper writing or whatever it is I have to do it just sort of gets done eventually but what I do feel and this is weird that my mind is going here uh, but you know I haven't I went to the physician recently and they asked you know they always ask about your drinking or your smoking history or your relationship with drugs or something like that. And my thing is, is like, well, don't you have this on file? But also, they always ask the same questions. And I, you know, haven't smoked cigarettes or drank an alcohol in maybe, I don't know, five, six, maybe seven years. I don't know what it is. It's, I don't know, we'll just call it six. Um. But one thing I used to think every once in a while, when especially when I was a daily pot smoker, is sometimes you know, because I, I drank every day. For me, it wasn't too depraved, but it was like I would cop a buzz every day. I would have a, a, enough drinks to sort of cop a buzz every day of my life for like about a decade. But especially when I was smoking weed too, I would have these moments in at night sometimes. You know, my work is done for the day. I go home. I'm watching a movie. I'm having a drink. Maybe I smoke a joint or something like that. But sometimes you would get really high or really kind of altered. And I would have these thoughts sometimes. I mean, certainly smoking weed sometimes, you have these like consciousness-raising experiences, right? Speaking of the Mayans of the Aztecs, sometimes when you're smoking, you have these consciousness-raising experiences or what you think are consciousness-raising experiences where you feel like you see your life in some new way. That Your life takes on this new relief where you feel like you see your life for what it really is, right? Like you've sort of entered this altered state where it's like, you, you think, oh, I go through my life and I'm deluded. And like my life is just this sort of thing I've become acclimated to. and But there's something about this sort of altered state experience where I see my life for what it really is. And it feels like this profound insight. and you But you tell yourself in that moment, you think, man, how can I go back to my life knowing what I know now, right? But sure as shit, what happens is you go to sleep and you wake up and it's just your normal life as usual. But in those moments... That normalcy, that thing that even in the back of your mind, because you've done it enough times, you know you will return to, once you've had these experiences a couple times, as they're happening, you think, yes, A, yes, I'm having this experience, and it will be like everything else, which is I will go to bed, and I'll wake up, and I'll be just fine. And that can be kind of a bummer when the experience is good. It's actually a good thing to tell yourself if you're having like a bad experience. I've never had any sort of truly like nightmarish experience on drugs. I haven't done a lot of drugs, but... You know, you do have moments where you're like, oh, this is not fun. You can sort of calm yourself or assuage your fears by reminding yourself, you know, I can just go to bed and as bad as this feels, I'll be okay. Um, But the thing that would really kind of weird me out sometimes is I would really think, how bizarre is it that I can get this far out? And, and, And in a way, I think that's what I was actually seeking when I was drinking or smoking weed all the time, is how can my brain get this broken? Like right now, you're looking at the clock and it's, I don't know, maybe it's like 10 p.m. at night, and you think, I'm going to go to bed and wake up, and in less than 12 hours, I'm going to be at my job just kind of doing what I do all the time. And it's, it's this weird kind of dual existence. It's bizarre to kind of see yourself so comfortably in both places and how you can transition from one to the other so quickly. So, I don't know what the point is except to say, like, I would find myself in these altered states where I would say, man, it's so bizarre that in X amount of hours, I'm just going to be back to things as normal. And maybe it sounds strange to equate uh, the weekend with something like that, but there is this sense in which my week is so structured that when I have this very sort of free-form, you know, temporally gelatinous, if you like that, uh, period... um, that I just sort of like I'm swimming in this soup and it's like things are very loose and I kind of do what I want and I stay up late. Like I think like, was it last night? How does this work? How does time work? No, I think it was like Friday night. I think I was up till like four. I was like watching a couple movies, but I also like read a little bit before I went to bed. And it was just like, how can I, it's so bizarre that I can be so free on the weekends, but like tonight I'm gonna have to get to bed at a reasonable hour, although I probably won't get to bed at like 2 a.m., which is like the norm for me these days. But it's like the idea that I have to wake up tomorrow and like just get back to my life as usual just feels very bizarre. I'm not quite sure how it'll work. But it always seems to work out that way. I mean, there's two things that always seem to happen, which is like I'm sitting here and on the one hand I feel depressed because I have to like start school again on Monday. But it's also like at the start of every week, I have this, and actually, I find on Sunday nights, I actually don't sleep very well, because I think I do have this anxiety about the coming week. But part of what I'm thinking when that happens is like, oh, man, I don't see my, I don't know how I'm going to get through another week. You know, at the start of every week, the five days that are ahead feels like, I don't want to say this insurmountable thing, because it, it's not that it feels insurmountable, but it just feels like, You know, there's just so much I don't want to do that I have to do. And you just think, I just don't know how I'm going to get through it. But of course, you take one day at a time, you take one hour at a time, you take one class at a time. And sure as shit, when Friday comes around, there's this other kind of equal experiences of like, wow, I can't believe that week went by so quickly. You know, and you're sort of excited about the weekend. And then once you're kind of in the middle of that weekend, you feel like, wow, I can't, like, I just don't see how it's possible to go back to my week the way I normally do. But sure as shit, that's exactly what you do. And by the way, I've been on this planet for like 38 years now. Like, where does this incredulousness come from? You know, there's this phrase that I've thrown around a lot called the cushion of experience, which I stole from my therapist, who I think took it from somebody else, but it's this idea that you know until you've done something enough times uh until you had the experience of doing something enough times you know it's very easy to kind of get buffeted around by the feelings that you have that attend to that thing so like when i was doing open mics for the first time playing music many many years ago those were very overwhelming experiences and uh performance in general i think is a good example of that which is you know you're usually you're always nervous that never goes away But what does change a little bit is once you've had the cushion of experience, you navigate that feeling very differently. Um, Which is, you know, I was talking with my friend recently about some of the last shows that I played. Um, Gosh, it's crazy to think how long ago that's been. Maybe almost like four or five years now. But I was saying even the last shows that I was playing for some of the biggest audiences that I played to, I was as nervous for though and maybe even a little less, honestly, but I was as nervous for those shows as I was for the first open mics that I ever played. And even though you feel the same kind of acuity of like fear or anxiety about this will be the night that I go on stage and shit my pants or something like that, you know, you just have the cushion of experience to tell yourself, hey, I feel this way all the time. Uh, and the worst has never happened yet. So I can't, you know, I can't see the future necessarily. But I have every... I have all the evidence I need to remain reasonably optimistic that tonight will not be the night that I defecate inside my clothing or something like that. Or throw up on myself or whatever whatever horror story you're telling yourself about what might transpire. But it's weird that even after all this time, even with that insight, that I st- I'm still engaged in the same thing. And this sort of actually... This... Like, you know, I, we've talked about this in other areas of my life at, as well, but this sort of extends to other er- to, to other things as well. This idea that, like, it's always starting over. You know, yes, the cushion of experience, and yes, I see that that's, that exists in my life, but I also see this recurring theme of, like, not quite getting traction in areas that I feel like I should be. And I don't know if that's just observably true, and I think it, it partly is, but i'm wondering if it's also tied up if, if there's a component of this that's also kind of tied up in what i'm uh, this other thing we were just talking about which is uh now that i'm trying to name it uh it escapes me um what was it not getting traction i was literally talking about this when we started um and it was just on the tip of my tongue um let me think here for a second Gosh, it's so funny getting older. You know, when you're growing up, your parents or something will always say like, oh, I had a senior moment or something like that. And it's because this is thing that's kind of floating around in the background or something. But, you know, I'm still pretty young. I mean, I'm talking about how old I am. But at the end of the day, I'm I'm still relatively young. I mean, I'm not uh, obviously a child. Like, I, I think about this actually in school. Like, I'm just surrounded by kids who are like in their early 20s. And to them, I'm absolutely decrepit. But, uh, you know, I understand in the constellation of life, I'm, I'm actually right smack dab in the middle. So, I'm a little too young for this to, to be having senior moments like this. But I do admit, I'm kind of at this age where, you know, when things start to pop up, you do wonder if, if is this the germinal state of something more serious? Like, when I exercise now, my right knee, I really do have to be careful with it which is a weird place to be in. Like, I, 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 one, I'm far too sedentary than I should be. I'm actually, I don't feel like I'm in great shape these days. But when I do, like, calisthenic stuff at my place, I really have to be mindful of my right knee. Because if I come down on it too hard or if I'm just kind of being loosey-goosey or pushing myself harder than I want, it's very clear to me that my knee is, like, not great. And I don't know if I, you know, have heard it from all the running that I used to do or whatever, but it's just you know, it's like my truck where the electrical stuff starts to die on it. It's not that, I mean, my knee is not in its own death throes, but it is like a door that squeaks or maybe uh, the right electrical window you feel, it's just a little underpowered, you know, or something like that. It's just little signs that some wear and tear is starting to to set in. And I I admit, like, the last couple weeks I've had these moments where I've had these kind of brain farts. And uh, I just think, like, you know, is this the beginning of a senior moment? Or even worse, sometimes, you know, when I'm like lying in bed at night and I'm like staring at the ceiling and I'm sort of being kind of doom and gloom about my life, I have thoughts that are like, well, maybe it's like a brain tumor or something like that. Like, I remember a couple years ago, probably during the time where, where we weren't connecting, I had this pain in the back of my, th- I don't really know how to describe this. It wasn't in the back of my throat. it was kind of halfway between the, the 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 back of my mouth and the top of my throat. It was in this place that felt just kind of weird and at first I was like, "Oh, is this strep throat?" But it was this kind of perpetual tenderness or something like that, and it made it difficult to swallow. it made it difficult to eat and you know I was saying uh, well, I don't know if I was just saying this, but I used to smoke. I smoked for years. I started smoking like kind of recreationally. When I was like 11 years old, like stealing cigarettes at a, uh ashtrays, and that was every once in a while. But I remember by my freshman year of high school, I was smoking a pack a day. And that, you know at my worst, I was like two and a half packs a day. But I, I was basically a, at least a pack a day smoker from the time I was like 15 to like 22. And for many years, I was smoking much more than a pack a day, as much as two and a half packs a day for a couple years. But then I quit for like eight years, and then when I was 30, I smoked for like another year and a half, and then I quit, and I haven't smoked in a long time. But when something like that happens, I have to admit, before I saw the doctor, I thought I had like throat cancer. And when I ended up going to the doctor, it's like a thousand things in my life, which is I show up, and I see this physician who I'd never seen before. I just sort of took the first available appointment rather than seeing my primary care doctor, and he just shines a light in my mouth, and he goes, oh, it's a canker sore. And I was like, huh? And he says, yeah, let me show you. And he just sort of sticks a mirror up for me and like shines a light in the back of my throat. And of course, yeah, I just see this like tender patch of skin in the back of my throat. And he's like, oh, it's a canker sore. And I was like, oh, he's like, what? I was like, what causes that? He's like, I don't know. <laughs> I was like, okay. And I was like, anything I should do? He's like, nah, it'll just go away. And uh, of course I was immediately relieved. But uh, yeah, I am at that age where You know, the kind of pains and things, you do start to wonder if it's like the germ the germination or the germinal state of something that will become more serious. And I know I'm getting away from what I was talking about. Speaking of senior moments, I don't know what the hell I was talking about a little bit ago where I forgot what I was going to say. But where my mind is going now is something about horror. And I watched a movie last night. It's a horror movie. It's called Talk to Me. And Uh, I know we're kind of coming up on Halloween here, so I'm starting to see like on the streaming services all the horror movies are kind of coming out, or whatever, and and actually I saw a trailer recently for this new Exorcist movie, which looks fucking abysmal, Um, it just reminds me, it's like, The Exorcist is the scariest movie I've ever seen, and this does kind of relate to what I was hoping, why, why I'm bringing up horror in general anyway, which is The Exorcist is the scariest movie I've ever seen, and... Uh, admittedly I saw it when I was too young it was legitimately traumatizing but um, you know that movie was genuinely scary and ever since that time I'm chasing not because I enjoy it but I I am chasing a horror movie that kind of elicits the same fear or something approximating the same fear I felt as a child watching The Exorcist um, in, in like a new type of movie and I never see it and I was sort of thinking about it because this movie talked to me was really kind of sold as like, you know, kind of just a, a truly scary movie. so it's Something truly, uh, uh, much scarier than other movies that come out. Because at the end of the day, most horror movies come out and they're just kind of the same shit over and over again. And that's why I bring up this new Exorcist looking abysmal because, you know, since The Exorcist, they've literally made hundreds of these exact same movies, which is just a kid who gets possessed and it's just the same shit over and over again. And you just think you know, not that those movies maybe don't have a couple jump scares, but it's not like, a mu- speaking of consciousness raising, it goes both ways. There's like going to the Mayan ruins and feeling like, oh, I'm connected to time. And then there's me when I was 11 years old watching The Exorcist and literally my consciousness raising thinking, one, I'm seeing things I never even knew existed from like an adult perspective. I mean, She's like, you know, stabbing herself with the crucifix and her head is spinning around. I just, the, the my imagination could not have even conjured something like that uh, happening. Uh, but I'm also feeling things I never thought I could feel before. And there's a way in which like being at the Mayan ruins is kind of like that as well. Wow, I feel connected with time. This is an experience I never could have foreseen. I'm feeling something that I didn't really know that I could possess and that's all very well and good. But this movie Talk To Me was kind of... You know, I think part of it is, I think it's from A24, which is like doing all the kind of cool indie movies right now. So, you know, um, you know you're know, you not supposed to judge a book by its cover. But I think most people feel like if you're going into a movie from A24, it's probably pretty good. So I went into this with really high hopes. And, um, you know, I have to, like, stylistically from a film standpoint, it actually is a pretty cool premise. It's this idea of these kids who have this, like, ab- uh, embalmed hand That when they touch it, they sort of, it's like a portal to the dead, and they can sort of let themselves become possessed by dead spirits. And the best part of the movie, actually, is when you realize, oh, this is actually pretty cool, is there's this really great sequence where you see, and I, I can't quite say that I'm confident what it is, but it seems very clear that there's something about these young kids, there's this kind of montage sequence where after they've kind of shown you how the mechanic works, where they like grip the hand and they say, talk to me. And the person who's holding the hand like sees a dead person. And then they'll say something like, I let you in. And then the spirit like jumps into them. And for X amount of time, they're like possessed by that spirit while their friends kind of look on and kind of have a blast. And as long as they keep this thing contained, it's actually this very fun thing for them. And so there's this montage once you've seen kind of how it works where they're just kind of fucking around and having fun, and they're kind of jumping in and out, where everybody's kind of taking a turn, and they're kind of filming each other with their cell phones. And I, I again, I can't state explicitly with any confidence what this relates to, but that's when I realized, oh, I was actually seeing some, and I think it's two filmmakers, who are kind of using this, uh, I, don't know if, I don't know what to call it, conjuring, or I can't quite think of the word, but these kids playing around with this intrinsically dangerous, lethal um, thing that's, you know, they they think that they control it, but there's clearly a lot more going, going on here than they realize. And the fact that they're kind of filming each other doing it and like, you know, maybe putting it up on TikTok or whatever it is, this kind of social media type of thing, this type of, there's a, there's a type of irreverence, right? There's a type of like, thinking you're in control of something because you're young and you can't really, you know, one, your cerebral cortex isn't fully formed, but there's something about that sequence that really kind of made it clear to me, like, oh, this is kind of like a modern filmmaker commentary on something about the youth culture and maybe the sense in which they're they're not really sure of the dangers they're subjecting themselves to and the dangers that they subject each other to or something like that. that. That's what sort of seemed to be in play, and I was like, okay... But after that, I have to admit, like, there was some kind of ghoulish imagery, and there was a couple moments that were kind of a little intense. But again, it just kind of fell short. You know, of of course, part of what made The Exorcist so crazy was that I was eleven. But even then, there's just certain. I I just it's very rare that I find a, a horror filmmaker who can kind of put me in kind of the same orbit, and it made me think like. I'm not like, um, or how do I say this? Let me relate it back to what I was talking about about getting older, which is, you know, it doesn't feel related. I'm sure it is on a Freudian sense, but as I was sort of doing some political science review, for some reason I had this Stephen King appearance on in the background. And uh, Stephen King was very formative for me as a young person. If you've listened to this log, I'm sure I've gone into it. But I'll just say when I was eight years old, I read his novel, Misery. And uh, I read that book in about two days. And after that, I was a voracious reader. So Stephen King was very formative for me, um, just as someone who loves to read. And, uh, lost touch with his books maybe around, like, the mid-90s or so. But, uh, yeah, for some reason, I don't know. I had YouTube on in the background. It was showing me things, suggesting videos, and one of them was Stephen King giving this, like, hour and a half long talk or something like that. And, um... He had this kind of interesting thing where people, he or he was saying, people always ask him, like, uh, like what why do people read horror stories, or what is the psychological motivation for why people read or watch horror movies or something like that? And he talked about, on some level, there's like, you know, sadism probably isn't the word for it, but it allows us to kind of get in touch with things that we probably all think and feel that, um, you know, are not really good for polite society. Um there's a way. I, I, there's a part of me that wants to go into the metaverse and all this sort of stuff. Well, I'll just say. It. So there's this very popular podcast episode that happened recently from uh, Lex Friedman, which was Mark Zuckerberg, Mark Zuckerberg, and Lex Friedman kind of meeting in the metaverse, and there was a question that was posed. Um, that I think they kind of ice skated around and didn't really touch on in a very interesting way. But it was this idea that if we can exist in the metaverse, how will we police it? Or will we police it? What types of behaviors will be permissible in the metaverse? For example, if I am, quote, in the metaverse and somebody else's, can I attack them? Can I kill them? And since that's not an actual person, can I be held accountable? Or is it the same type of crime? That's a very interesting question that I'm sure a science fiction writer or horror author should write about. Um, But uh, where am I going with this? Oh, I think I was saying Stephen King was like, you know, that's a way that we kind of exercise feelings that are kind of innate in all of us on some level. Um, Conversely, I saw this series on, I think it was, was it Netflix? It's called Inside Man. And it had this very interesting story about a a vicar who, like, has a woman trapped in his basement, which was very interesting, which was happening alongside one of the silliest stories I've ever seen, like, in a ostensibly seriously-minded television show of, like, Stanley Tucci playing this, like, uh, this murderer on death row who's simultaneously, like, trying to help people solve cases. It's absolutely fucking insane. But the thrust or the idea of that show is like everybody is potentially a killer. It just takes like the right circumstances for it to happen. Anyway, the point is, is that maybe there's something about that. We all have these kind of base instincts that when we read novels or watch certain movies, it helps us kind of get in touch with, but also like in a socially appropriate or ritualistic way process these innate feelings that we all have, but what Stephen King was pointing out and it might be related to this film talk to me in some way because it takes or you know horror, horror movies often take young people as their subjects like the people who are always possessed are usually young women strangely um, or these slasher movies like Friday the 13th that has young people and so maybe there's something to, be, to, to think about there but what you also notice is that fans of this material is usually younger people and I've noticed this as I get older too, which is like <clears throat> my brother and I share social media content with each other all the time. Like we'll just sort of private message each other on Instagram these funny videos that we're watching. And it reminds it's 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 sort of a continuation of something that we used to watch when we were younger, which is like when my brother was really into skateboarding, one of the biggest parts of skate videos when you would sort of check them out was the fall section. You know, one of the best parts of watching skate videos was they would always have these edited sequence of people just falling. And it was always fun as a kid to watch those sequences because it was funny, and the worse the fall, the better it was. But this was also around the time where things like "Camp Kill Yourself," if you know, or 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 Jackass, which is what "Camp Kill Yourself" sort of became, was these sort of prank videos where people just doing absolutely insane things and like hurting themselves on purpose, and it was just it was sort of nuts. But as a kid, you like loved that stuff. But like as an adult now whether I'm on social media or I'm sort of relating it back to horror movies is when I see violence in television or when I see videos where somebody's like skateboarding and they rack their nuts I actually can't watch it now because I have this very strong visceral response where I I literally feel it I have like an empathy or a sympathy for the for the subject of those videos that like I just didn't have when I was a kid and I think part of it And this may sound like an overstatement, because as someone who hasn't had any major losses in their life and hasn't had to deal with, I haven't had to really face my own mortality, I've had a couple moments where I had these kind of humbling experiences where I realized that uh, I'm not going to be here forever. But there's something about that germinal pain in the knee that when you start to have it, and I'm not saying it's looking you dead in the eyes, but it becomes more apparent. Your mortality becomes very real, where the thrill of the horror movie or the person racking their nuts or something like that where you know that real harm can be done as an older person you just it's not entertaining for you anymore it's kind of sad like an extreme example is i saw that movie years ago it was called like the day after tomorrow or something like that or maybe it's not that one it's some movie with john cusack where it's like literally armageddon is happening And there's this whole sequence where they're like trying to, I think they're trying to fly a plane out of LA as literally the entire city is being decimated either by like a tidal wave or an earthquake or I don't know what it is. But there's this horrible CGI sequence, which is the way they sort of presented it, supposed to be kind of awe inspiring. Where as this plane is kind of taking off from LA, literally, you know, office, entire office buildings are crumbling. And as I'm watching it, I'm just thinking, hundreds, I'm, I'm literally watching the the mass demise of hundreds of thousands of human people. And I was like, this is really off-putting. Like, I don't want to watch this fucking movie. And there's something about, you know, watching, you know, there's not a huge body count in this movie. Talk to me. But horror movies are this way. Is like, when I watch horror movies now, it's like not entertaining for me because one, usually young people are at the heart of it. But it's like, when a young person dies in a horror movie now, it's not just like another... Um, What's the word I'm looking for? I forget what the what do they call it, like co-eds? Like, I don't know. There's a com- comic way that people talk about these movies, like Friday the 13th, was it's like, yeah, a bunch of co-eds get killed in the, in the woods or something like that. It's not just like another body count. I think, like, I literally think, like, oh my gosh, that was a child. Like, they had their whole life ahead of them. Like, how tragic. And the fact that, you know, like, when you watch these true crime stuff, which I watch a fair amount of, this stuff actually happens to people you know and so this idea that like someone is like getting killed at like a young age it's like there's something about as you get older where that stuff is it's not because you're a prude it's because your your consciousness has been actually raised to absorb the reality of what you're actually being presented with you have like a new you have wow now we're coming now we're coming now we're coming to it it's you, you have an you have an actual reverence for the thing right like, once you actually have some experience of loss or grief or mortality or something like that, you learn that there's actually something about how it's dealt with which is irreverent, you know? And maybe that's what it is. Because I think the whole th- point I was actually trying to drive at is why can I watch a movie like The Exorcist and I feel like I'm in the presence of art? Yes, it's very scary and that's, you know, maybe that's a matter of craft or technique, but I'm just talking about on like a creative level. When you watch the movie The Exorcist, Yes, it was a very popular film, but at least when I watch it, I know that I'm in the presence of a of a serious film with a capital F, where this is, it's not just a horror movie, this is a real creative statement. And when I look at Talk to Me, I say, this is a very ambitious movie, and I know auteurism is a word that, word that I sort of throw around a lot here, but I feel this It sort of has the faint aroma of auteurism. It feels like a genuine creative statement, but it's missing something. And what is that? I don't know what it is. Because there's something about that moment, you know, that montage that I mentioned, where there's this kind of, what to me kind of seems like this commentary on like the irreverence of youth, where I go, oh, that's a very interesting statement. But that to me kind of got lost in kind of the tropes of horror in general. There's something about the rest of the film that just kind of seemed kind of tropey or whatever. But what I was trying to compare that to is, what horror movies have I seen recently that really genuinely scared me? And the only name that comes to mind, which you may think is kind of cliche, but is Ari Aster and his movies Hereditary and *Midsummer*. I know he did a movie recently with Joaquin Phoenix, which I haven't seen, which I, I don't think is horror. I think it's like a to me it seems like his kind of infinite jest like he's made these two very good films that people celebrate and now it was time for him to really swing for the fences with like a uh not just a horror movie but like his magnum opus or to really show people what he can do or something like that which is what it i sort of guessed from the trailer but we'll see but there's something about hereditary and even midsummer where i think i watch those movies and yes they're horror but again i feel like i'm in the presence of like a notorious filmmaker and i I guess as I'm thinking about this movie Talk To Me and Stephen King, and I'm not sure if I, maybe I did make my point, but I think Stephen King was also making this point, which is you don't see young, or sorry, you don't see old people going to see zombie movies, uh, and you don't see old people uh, sort of lining up to see Talk To Me, because they they have enough of that in their, whatever whatever young people exercise through the genre, whatever people are trying to get in touch with, you know, they actually don't have to go to the um, uh, they actually don't They don't have to go to the movie theater to see The Walking Dead. They just go to the nursing home where they're going to end up in about 10 years to see The Walking Dead, right? Um, so yeah, what am I saying? I guess I'm just trying to explore the difference between what is it about horror as a genre that when I think back as a child, I can be like profoundly moved by? Because I guess what I don't want to fall into is that thing where it's like, as you get older, you look at like what's being done now and you say, oh, it's not like it used to be right? Like The Exorcist is before my time. It's not like it's, a, you know, there are some movies from my childhood that I may sort of glow about that people will think I, I probably do have a brain tumor, like movies like The NeverEnding Story or Labyrinth. You know, to me, those are very profound movies. And I, I recognize it could just be me personally. It also could just be the romanticism from my own childhood. But Exorcist is a movie before my time. You know, it's a movie even even from before my time. And so when I look at that, I think, why is that What is it about that movie that is not only extra scary, but it feels sort of... It has creative integrity as well. And to me, there's something about... It has something to do with reverence. You know, when I look at, like, her stabbing herself with a crucifix or or, or, um, a crucifix or, you know, vomiting on the priest or her head turning around, those don't feel like uh, gimmicks to me. Like, I really feel... And this goes back to, you know, why are young people or young women, especially in these movies of the possession, why are they the subjects of the possession? There's something about The Exorcist as well, which I really feel like there's something going on in that movie where it's because you have this young, innocent girl who this is happening to that it, it feels extra tragic. And it's like once that, once that has been done in The Exorcist and everybody just kind of copies it, it loses that bite. You know, like, for example, another formative film, I was thinking, like, what are the movies that really scared me? Blair Witch Project, seeing that movie in theaters, you know, I admit when that movie came out, I mean, one, it was a, you know, one, how many movies come out that create a genre? Very, very rare. But the found footage of the Blair Witch Project, you know, I went into it not really knowing anything about it. And as I was watching it, I believed that this was actually found footage. And... There was something so terrifying about that film especially that last moment where that you know the young man is just kind of like standing facing away in the corner and the craziest part is you actually like don't see anything in that movie it's all left to your imagination um but yeah yeah and again I don't know where I was going with that except to say yeah there are movies that scare me why doesn't it happen anymore uh yeah maybe maybe needing to do something different having something new to say having a new spin on something rather than just creating like, you know, uh, the the one hundredth exorcism movie where it's literally the exact same story being told over and over again. There was something about Blair which was which was new and novel. And even though Hereditary was less original, maybe, you know, there's something about that movie that has a lot of integrity too. And I think Midsummer as well also does very well, especially because it's a it's a horror movie. But it's the only horror movie I can think of where there's like no darkness. You know, the beginning there's some darkness, but once. The actual story gets underway. The sun never sets in that movie. Everything is very, very bright. And so it's just weird to think. You know, there's there's something about that that I thought was like a really new uh, and strong creative choice. Um, but anyway, yeah, I feel myself kind of uh, flailing around here for something to talk about. So thankfully, uh, I'll be uh, relieved of my duty very shortly. But what can we say in summary? We started talking about school and getting old, and the cushion of experience, and I think at one point I said the words like, uh, uh, temporally gelatinous, or something like that, and, uh, yeah, a working theory of what makes some movies scary, and some a snooze fest. So again, this is not planned, people, we just kind of end up where we, where we end up, um, but, uh, yeah, good times. Um, one looming thing in my life that I still have to sort of get serious about pretty soon is this honors thesis. I'm supposed to have been writing for about two semesters now, which I haven't looked at in about four or five months. But uh, I'm sure as that date approaches, you'll be hearing a lot about that. So I won't bore you with it now. Uh, for now, I'll just say, um, you know, glad we got it done. Uh, I'm on the cusp of the start of my week, and I imagine by the time you hear this, if you hear this, you'll um, you'll be in the same place as well. So. Uh, I'll just wish you well with that, and uh, I'll look forward to doing this again next week. Until then, thank you for your time. Thank you for listening, and ciao for now.